This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Though anxiety has risen among teens and young adults overall, studies are showing that it has skyrocketed in girls. Research is finding that the number of girls who said that they often felt nervous, worried, or fearful jumped 55% from 2009 to 2014, while the comparable number for adolescent boys has remained unchanged. In this part of today's show, we're going to be speaking with a clinical psychologist who specializes in working with girls, and she's witnessed the rising tide of stress and anxiety in her own research, in private practice, and in the all-girls school where she consults. Our guest is going to talk to us about the surprising and underappreciated value of stress and anxiety, that it can actually help stretch us beyond our comfort zones and keep us safe. At the same time, she understands that no parent wants their daughter to suffer from emotional overload. And so she's going to be talking to us also about places where stress and tension takes hold in girls' lives, their interactions at home, the pressures at school, social anxiety when they're among other girls and among boys, and especially when they're on social media. I'm Armin Brat. We'll start talking about the epidemic of stress and anxiety in girls when positive parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker. Your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Lisa Damour, who's the author of Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you, you talk in the book about how anxiety and stress has skyrocketed among girls but has stayed the same among boys. And I'm just curious, I mean, the, the, a lot of things about self-esteem, we've heard about girls' self-esteem plummeting during adolescence and boys staying the same or being high. And some studies that look at that a little bit more carefully find that basically boys are just lying about it. And that they, they and I would imagine that there's something about that also, about boys not acknowledging stress or anxiety. Do you think that that's partly what's going on? Great question. And this is one of those things that when you pull this thread, there's a lot sort of, you know, wrapped up in there. 
So in some studies, we see girls reporting these big leaps um, over a five-year period and feeling really nervous and fearful and worried, and boys reporting no change. In other studies, we do see that anxiety and stress are creeping up for boys and girls, but creeping up at a faster rate for girls than for boys. Mm -hmm. Um, And it has always been the case that diagnostically, girls are much more likely to be diagnosed with anxiety than boys. Um, Their rates have always sort of hovered around two to one, though they may be shifting even more, unfortunately, in the girls' favor. You know, not that anyone's winning in this. No. But... um, One way we can construe this big gap, and this gets to your question about, well, what is going on for the boys, is that it's one of the kind of um, cardinal rules in my field of psychology that when girls are distressed, they're more likely to collapse in on themselves, to look depressed or anxious, and that when boys are distressed, they're more likely to act out, to get themselves in trouble, um, to be angry. So... There's no question that boys suffer like girls suffer. Um, Probably different causes, different routes, different reasons. What we're interested in some ways in my field is, you know, what's the expression of that suffering? And, And so as stress goes up, I think for kids in general, we are seeing more anxiety in girls. I think we're seeing a tick up in boys. We may see other ways in which boys are letting us know that they're distressed. What are girls anxious about? Is there, is there anything that I mean, you, you must have put together a list of, of the top three or four things? What, what are the things that are concerning them so much that, that is leading to this? So when we try to think about what are the things that are uniquely stressful for girls, right? There's so much that we can point to that stresses everyone, but what are the girls themselves up against? <clears throat> so one of the things I tried to do in my book was to go layer by layer through girls' lives you know, what happens for them with other girls, what happens for them in, you know, their relationships with guys, uh, the dynamics at school, the dynamics in the culture. So here are some of the big takeaways. Girls worry more about school than boys. They work harder at school than boys, and they feel more stressed by it, even when they're doing better academically as a group than boys are. We also know that a lot has been added to girls' plates, largely For the better, you know, girls have now so many opportunities and every option available to them, but we haven't taken things off their plate at the same time. So one thing I'm really mindful of is girls as a group are very, very serious about school, but they still spend a huge amount of time worrying about whether or not they look okay, whether they're cute enough or hot enough. Um, I think it's true in broad strokes that when boys are very, very serious about school, as many are, they may not be as much, you know, kind of dogged by worries that they don't look the way they're supposed to look at the same time. You know, this is something, I've got three three daughters, and uh-huh. we talk about these things every once in a while. And I've had it told to me from a number of people, not only my daughters, but a number of women, that women and girls, when they're concerned about how they look, they're often more concerned about how they look, not so much in other people's eyes. I mean, not, not so much in boys' eyes, which I think is something that, that we talk about a lot, is that there's a lot of pressure put on, on women and girls from men and boys, but it's the, the pressures that are coming from other girls. Do you talk about that? Um, I talk about competition among girls, right, which is an incredibly fraught topic. Uh, girls are ambitious. They are striving. They are trying to do incredible things, and yet... We haven't given them a lot of guidance about how to navigate that when they're competing against classmates or even good friends. And I think one 
sort of zone of competition that comes up a lot is appearance and body and fitness and weight. And it gets exacerbated by social media, where there's a huge amount of energy sometimes that girls are putting in with um, doing really what amount to photo shoots, where they you know put on their makeup and they pose themselves just so, and they put on this cute little outfit or a bikini, and then they take you know hundreds of images and then post one, with often sort of with the suggestion that it was sort of spontaneously taken, and so so <laughs> yeah. what we're seeing right is that you know. For our generation, I'm the parent of teenagers too, for our generation, we may have sort of, you know, measured ourselves against the models we saw in magazines. Now we're raising a generation of young women who are comparing themselves to the girl who sits next to them in math, you know, and this girl who has, at the same time, created a really crafted media image, but it doesn't feel as far away, maybe, as like Elle McPherson did when I was growing up, you know. So we have to help girls with it. And one of the metaphors I suggest is that we remind young people and ourselves, I think, too, that what we're seeing online and what people choose to present online is sort of like a furniture showroom, and it cannot be compared to a lived-in home. You know, the lived-in home is what we know about our own lives and how messy and imperfect and real they are. Most of what gets put up on social media, especially by younger adolescents, is the furniture showroom, the crafted, the curated, the carefully presented. And so we're always having, I think, to step in and say, look, you know, I, I've met that girl. She's she's adorable, but, like, she doesn't look like that. Or tell me about her. Like, I see that she, you know, looks really cute here and is working hard at it. How come? What's that for? Who is that for? You know, I I look at the news feeds that I get. I get a, a number of them, and I, I have to shut off the entertainment news because I find it so annoying just generally. But also, I just I, I look at it and I think all of these articles from relatively mainstream publications, but also from women's magazines about, oh, Meghan Markle wore these shoes, and now you can have them too. And or somebody, you know, Kim Kardashian did this, and you should too. Just it seems like so much pressure is put on to girls to not only look like the, the one who's sitting next to them in math class, but also to replicate somehow the even more crafted images that are put out there by by celebrities i mean and and poor megan markle the the poor thing is just constantly under the media microscope and it just seems so horrible for her to have to deal with that and and so so many of these other people but she seems like a nicer person than the kardashians <laughs> like absolutely and i think that you're talking about at least two problems so one problem is that there's a market here right i mean it's one of those things like follow the money you know someone's making money off of selling young women on this idea that they should own the same items as these high status or at least high um, you know, high profile people. So there's money to be made. The other thing that makes me really bananas is the extraordinarily disproportionate emphasis on outward appearance. When we are talking about Meghan Markle, we are talking, like you say, about her shoes, about her hair, about the cut of her dress. She's a talented person. She's a skilled actress who made it in an industry that's very, very hard to make it in. We don't talk about that nearly so much as we talk about her latest mascara. And I really worry about that approach to talking about women, that we tend to talk about the outsides so much more than we talk about what goes on inside for them. Yeah. 
and I think, but the, the the harder part for me is as a guy and as a father of daughters is that this is coming from other women, that they're they're telling other women that these these messages that seem to be just nothing short of harmful. I think that's true. I think that's true, and I think we have to accept, and I'm sure you've accepted as a parent, and I have that we can't prevent our daughters from being exposed to media that we really disagree with. I think what we can do is, without beating it to death in a way that makes us too annoying, we can take every opportunity to say exactly what you just said. Say, oh, man, I hate seeing this preoccupation with Meghan Markle's shoes. There's so much more to her as a person. There's so much more to any woman in her shoes, and yet it seems like that's all we talk about. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Talking with Lisa Damore, who's the author of Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will keep talking to Lisa. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that we can give our daughters everything they need to grow and learn. But not every child can focus on classes and play dates. Nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. face hunger. That's one in six. School lunch might be their only meal each day, and it's heartbreaking to imagine any child going to bed hungry. We're dreaming of a perfect day when kids can smile, play, and just be kids without worrying about where their next meal will come from. Feeding America is working to make that perfect day a reality. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste. That food is given to families and children in need. Being a kid should be about doing things that make an ordinary day extraordinary. Learning to play an instrument, building a sandcastle, hosting tea parties. Hunger should never be an obstacle to growing up. You can help end childhood hunger in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Lisa Damore, the author of Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. So we've talked a little bit about some of the the things that girls are anxious and stressed about and the damage that that's doing to them. Talk a little bit about the benefits of stress. We'll take a take a break from the downer stuff. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. So the entire first chapter of my book is about the academic and clinical understanding of stress and anxiety. So I've been a practicing psychologist for 25 years. And part of why I felt I had to write this book is that our understanding, our professional understanding of stress and anxiety is really quite divorced from the cultural understanding. So the culture right now tends to see all anxiety and all stress as harmful, whereas psychologists 
have long believed and continue to believe that stress and anxiety are normal and healthy functions. They're basically going to happen if you get out of bed. <laughs> You're going to have one or the, bo- or the other or probably both multiple times in the course of a day. Stress is what happens when we operate at the edge of our capacities. Anytime we take on something new and challenging, we will feel stressed. And it can be a good thing. It can be having a baby come into our house, right? That's a wildly stressful experience the first time you have a new baby. Um, Getting married, getting a new job. Uh, It also can happen under difficult conditions, you know, when um, a close friend is really ill or when um, we have to move against our wishes or something like that. What we know as psychologists is that stress has what we call an inoculating function, that if you have a stressful experience and weather it, you actually come out of it tougher and more durable and flexible, right? So if you think about if you have two babies, you know, the second time you have a child come into your home, it's not nearly so overwhelming, even though you now have twice the kids. So the way we want to think about this and then really importantly talk about it with our children is to not talk about stress as something that has to be gotten rid of or avoided. But for the most part, and there are some exceptions, we want to talk about stress as a normal and expectable and actually growth-giving part of life. Okay. And, and how does that work? How do you do that? So, so say that your 10th grade daughter is saying, oh, my gosh, chemistry is so hard. You know, chemistry is absolutely brutal, which it is. You know, chemistry is a big shift from everything that's come before. And she says, I'm so stressed by it. I'm so stressed by it. Then we can say, yeah, of course you are. This is brand new. Um, You have to adapt a ton to get good at this. Here's the good news. The more you work at this, the easier it will get. A great analogy for school especially is to talk about intellectual growth in the same way we talk about weightlifting or muscle building, that in order to gain intellectual strength, you have to do workouts on material that is hard, just as in order to gain muscular strength, you have to work out on you know, weights that are unpleasantly heavy to lift. And if we can talk about that as expectable, typical, part of what we've signed up for, it can take some of the discomfort out of it. I worry that right now, when we talk about stress as all bad, we're actually creating a condition where we have young people who become stressed about even being stressed Mm -hmm. as opposed to becoming stressed and then thinking, all right, I'm going to get something out of this. I'm getting growth and strength as a function of this. Besides just telling them that it's a normal thing, are there some skills or some techniques or strategies that people can use to get over some of this stuff? And I, I don't mean get over it in a harsh way, but I mean, what you're saying a little bit differently is it just stop. It's yeah. it's not that bad. It's not that bad, or it's supposed to be this way. You know, school is supposed to be stressful. I, I, that's one of the titles of one of the sections in my book. You know, that this is what we are, in fact, asking of our children. But yes, there are definitely things we can do. So one thing we can do is to pivot our attention away from oh my gosh, this is so stressful, to how is this student or how is this person going through a difficult thing going to recover? You know, what is coping going to look like? And again, you can really do a lot with that muscle building analogy. You know, you cannot lift weights all the time. A huge part of growing muscle is to work out, rest and recover, and then go back to working out. 
So what I love to think with young people about is how they themselves like to recover. And it's really fun because most young people have their favorite way to cope or to relax. And it can be very idiosyncratic. You know, so there's some things like some kids are like, oh, I love to go for a run or I like to watch, you know, reruns of Grey's Anatomy or I like to cuddle with the dog. Um, I've also had young people say things like, I love this. I had a girl to me, say to me that um, she loved when she was really, really stressed to rip up a piece of paper into a lot of little pieces and then tape it together like a puzzle, which I thought was so, you know, so funny and unique, but it worked for her. So when we're talking with young people who feel very, very stressed, we can validate that that it's stressful. We can say, yep, that's actually normal and expectable and you're going to get something out of this. And then we can say, what's a good way for you to try to catch your breath a little bit? Do you want to, you know, go for a run? Do you want to watch this movie that you love? Do you want to, you know, whatever it is that your child likes. And what I always tell young people is that the good news is that brains recover a lot faster than muscles. That for most students, they can have a very long, challenging day at school. And if they can come home and have a half an hour, maybe 45 minutes to an hour of real downtime, where they just um, relax, recover, do the thing that works for them, they can usually get right back to working out. You're talking about mentally. Mentally, yes. Yeah. <laughs> get, get back okay. to, a, to an intellectual workout. Okay, but just the other thing, sure. Yeah, no, I'm glad you clarified that. The other thing, though, I think that we want to get comfortable with is that stress is unpleasant and uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean it's bad. That's, I think, sometimes where parents and kids can get stuck. And this is also true of anxiety, that it's unpleasant and uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean it's bad. And, um, and I, again, just to really beat this exercise metaphor to death, exercise can be quite uncomfortable, but we know it's good for you. And same with stress and anxiety, because anxiety, to go down that path for a minute, actually keeps us safe. That anxiety is our internal alarm system that alerts us to a threat. And so when we're anxious, Usually we want to pay attention to it. You know, maybe we're at a party we shouldn't be at if we're a teenager and it's just too crazy a party and we need to get out of there. Or we're anxious because we have a big test and we haven't started to study. You know, we want young people to pay attention to their anxiety and not feel like something's wrong all the time if they feel anxious. You know, and just to go back for the last time to the the connection or at least the metaphor of exercise and, and stress that one can be used to help the other. I mean, exercise can certainly, has been shown over and over again, to be a stress reduction thing. So that is a way that some people may be able to at least take the edge off of some initial stress. Absolutely, absolutely. And this always comes up, parents will often ask me about kids being overscheduled. And there are kids who are overscheduled. But it's very individual. And it is sometimes the case that um, for some students, that sports work really well for them as a way to release some of the stress from the school day and then feel refreshed as they head back into their homework for the evening. So even if on paper their schedule looks really, really jammed, that doesn't mean actually that it isn't creating a pretty good balance between one kind of demand and then another kind of demand that allows them to reset. We only have just a minute left. I want to go back a little bit to the, the more downer type of stress. But what do you what do you suggest that people do about the mean girls syndrome? Well, so it is true that girls can be mean, um, though I have to say as an advocate for girls and young women, when we look at the data, um, boys are 
quite a bit more aggressive, both physically, uh, much more aggressive physically than girls. And it turns out, I've met several studies, equally aggressive relationally. So girls are not meaner than boys. Uh, they do have a reputation, though, for that. The truth is that we do need to help young people learn how to have healthy conflicts. And a lot of the mean girl behavior is unhealthy conflict. And grown-ups are not great at dealing with conflict, so we're not necessarily good at teaching kids how to have healthy conflict. So I have a whole long section in my chapter titled Girls Among Girls about what healthy conflict looks like and how to teach kids all about it so that if they are going to engage in conflict, they do it in ways that may work well, may serve them in the long run, and also may help bring the drama down as opposed to continuing to fuel it. So there's more we can do, but we haven't we haven't really done our part, I think, as grown-ups to help young people have effective strategies for managing disagreements, which will arise, of course, in the course of being with a whole bunch of kids all day, every day for nine months. Lisa Demour is the author of Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. Lisa, thanks so much. Great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. To protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen! By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. 911, what is your emergency? My kid shot himself. Every day, eight kids and teens are unintentionally killed or injured by loaded and unlocked guns. Learn how to make your home safer at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and End Family Fire. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, my two-year-old son has discovered his genitals and spends what seems like an awful lot of time playing with himself. How can I get him to stop? The toddler years are the age of exploration, a time when your child investigates his world and learns about all the great things he can do with his body. Giving him as much freedom as possible to explore is critical to his developing sense of autonomy and self-confidence. Like it or not, almost all toddlers go through a genital self-exploration phase, and it's especially common right about the time when they start making the transition from diapers to big kid underwear. After all, when they were wearing diapers all the time, their genitals were pretty hard to grab a hold of. But now that they're accessible nearly all the time, it kind of reminds me a little of that George Carlin quip, why do dogs lick their crotches? Because they can. Still, it's a little discomforting to watch a child play with his or her own genitals, and it's hard to resist pulling the child's hand away or snapping, Stop that! Whatever your reason, try to resist the urge to step between your child and his genitals. Making a big deal out of it can give him the message that that part of his body is dirty or that touching it is somehow wrong. For a little boy, his penis is no more interesting than any other part of him, says pediatrician Fitzhugh Dotson. It's only when we react as though there's something bad or naughty about it that we teach him to become morbidly interested. The same obviously goes for little girls. The truth, of course, is that our toddlers were only developed sex hang-ups if we teach them to, says Dodson. 
At home, the best plan of action is to neither encourage nor discourage genital exploration. In public places, however, gently redirect your child to another activity, telling him that private touching should be done in a private place, such as his own room in his own home. In addition, teach the correct names for human body parts, including penis, vagina, and rectum, just as you did for belly button, nose, and elbow. Being able to name something makes it a lot less mysterious. Explain physical differences between adults and children. Adults' pubic hair, as well as the hair on their chest, under the arms, and elsewhere, and adult-sized genitals are of special concern to kids. The simple message for kids this age is that as you get bigger, everything gets bigger, and that when you get to be a grown-up, you get hairier. Talk about touching. It's simply not okay for anyone, adult or child, to touch a child in his or her private area, except if the adult is a doctor or a parent bathing a child or changing a diaper. Bathroom privacy, closing the door, knocking, that kind of thing, is also a good topic to bring up now. Empower your child. Tell him that if someone other than his parents or a doctor touches his private areas, he should tell you right away. Curiosity about sex and self-exploration are normal, plus it feels good. So is playing doctor and wanting to examine other children's body parts or show them theirs. That type of behavior may seem sexual to you, but in most cases, children see it as just play. However, if your child is obsessed with touching himself or others, you may want to speak to his pediatrician about whether it's a behavioral problem or a sign of sexual abuse. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.